one in three uh, adults is obese, not just overweight, but obese. And that by the year 2030, which is sometime in the distant future, right? Eight years from now, uh, that it'll be 50%. 50% of adults in North America obese. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. I have such a treat for you today, Bettys. I have spoke with Dr. David Perlmutter. This is his second time on the show. You may recall his last appearance on Better. We were talking all about his book, Brainwash. And this time he came back to talk about his new book, which is absolutely fabulous. Uh, The name is Drop Acid. And no, it's not about psychedelics. It is about uric acid. So a little bit about Dr. Perlmutter. He is a board certified neurologist, five-time New York bestselling author, serves on the board of directors as a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. Dr. Perlmutter received his medical degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine, where he was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award. Uh, He serves as a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including the Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. In addition, he is a frequent lecturer at symposias sponsored by institutions such as the World Bank, IMF, Columbia University, New York University, Harvard, uh, etc. Dr. Perlmutter's books have been published in 32 languages and includes the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, with over 1 million copies in print. So very accomplished individual, always a pleasure to speak to him. And what did we talk about today? Well, we were talking all about uric acid. And for many of us, we think about uric acid, potentially if you've even heard of that molecule, uh, you think about it in the context of gout. So we talked about gout. We talked about gouty arthritis. What are purines? The way that we get gout through the consumption of sugar and in particular fructose. So we talk about the structure and functional differences between fructose and glucose. We talk about um, how fructose is really involved in stealing energy uh, versus glucose is involved in producing energy. 
And we go all the way through for all of my clinicians that that listen and all of my nerds. You don't need to be a clinician if you're just a nerd that wants to have more information. This is going to be the show for you because we talk about the uric acid pathway, how ATP, adenosine triphosphate, is reduced to AMP. And then we go, we have this bifurcation, if you will, in the road. And we talk about AMP kinase and AMP deaminase. And then we talk about all of the different permutations that uric acid um, can affect, including insulin resistance, hypertension, um, cognitive decline, in all, and the um, increase that we see in AMPD in Alzheimer's. We talk about salt and blood pressure, how salt can increase the production of fructose. We talk about the ketogenic diet and uric acid levels, why drinking sugar is worse than consuming it. And we talk about sorbitol and we talk about why um, this is an artificial sweetener that we should always avoid at all costs. Overall, this is just a fantastic conversation. As I've said, anytime I get to spend time with Dr. Perlmutter, I feel motivated, enlightened, and just a big research nerd. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation on uric acid with Dr. David Perlmutter. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Welcome back to the show, Dr. David Perlmutter. It's so great to have you here again. So great to be with you, Stephanie. Good to see you again. Yes. And we are, today we are discussing your new book, Drop Acid. And I have to say that of all, all of your books, the titles of all of your books are just like top shelf clever. You know, you have Grain Brain, Brainwash, uh, and now Drop Acid, which you might think is about psychedelic therapy. And of course it is not. We're talking about uric acid today, but just, I wanted to just uh, tell you like really well done on all of the acronyms oh, and thank all you. the titles. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. Um, all right. So we're, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about uric acid today. And I thought I was saying this to you a little bit in the pre-chat as a, as by way of background, starting with maybe understanding some of the mechanisms at play in terms of what, where uric acid comes from. I think for most people, if they do recognize, uh, uric acid there, they might associate it with, Gout, which is of course notoriously famous for you know attacking the proximal joint of the first uh, metatarsal, like the bunion of the first uh, the big toe. So maybe we can start with gout. Um, what are sure. some of, you know what are some of the observations that have been around the etiology of of gout, and and then we can talk about purines and fructose, etc. As well. Sure. So uh, we've you know in in our training and years ago uh, we all talked about uric acid in the context of gout. And that was, that was your grandfather's uric acid, right? That was, that's old school. Um, 
and not that that's not important, it is, but the, the big new exciting news about uric acid is that, well, let me give you the title of an interesting report that came out uh, from Japanese researchers. A uric acid in metabolic syndrome from innocent bystander to central player. And that really encapsulates what the whole book is about. And that is that this uric acid in our bodies, when it is elevated, is a powerful instigator of metabolic mayhem, meaning that it's now been identified as not just being elevated along with high blood pressure and increasing body fat, increasing blood sugar, but it's causing it. It's playing a mechanistic role that this uric acid is a danger signal to the body saying winter's coming. We need to make fat. We need to raise the blood pressure so we're protected against becoming dehydrated. We need to raise the blood sugar so that we can power the brain so maybe we can find food and avoid being eaten by another animal. So this is a, uh, a mechanism that's been present in humans and even in our primate ancestors for millions of years the fact that we have much higher uric acid levels than other mammals. It's a danger signal and it's a survival mechanism in the presence of not having enough food. Uh, but now, obviously, that's not the case. And the huge triggers for uric acid that are telling our bodies make more fat and lock it up are things like fructose, fruit sugar, alcohol, and purines that you mentioned that have long been associated with another problem related to elevated uric acid, which is gout. But those very same purines, because they raise uric acid, are associated when the uric acid is elevated with things like high blood pressure, elevated blood sugar, uh, increased body mass index, increasing our body fat, and locking it up as well. So it's not only uh, exciting for me because it, it now answers so many questions uh, but it also offers up a really powerful new tool in the toolbox to help people who, you know, are doing the best they can, but can't seem to lose that weight, can't seem to get that final blood sugar level back to where they want it, uh, are still fully dependent on blood pressure medication. I'm not saying that getting your uric acid level under control is going to be the end all, but it's uh, a, certainly a powerful tool uh, just to take, you know, the, the, to, to really reach that goal in in so many people and you know when i mentioned a moment ago that it it fills in the blanks or it's this missing piece of the puzzle we've known for example since 1970 in the journal the lancet that fructose consumption when increased as it is now uh, is associated with all those metabolic issues and more elevated triglycerides dyslipidemia high blood pressure higher blood sugar increased body fat but we didn't know how it happened. We didn't know how and why it happened. Now we know because elevated fructose turns on the production of uric acid. That's its end of the line metabolite. That's what it becomes. And that uric acid's telling the body, winter is coming. We need to store fat. We need to raise the blood sugar. So it, it really answered uh, a lot of questions for us. And it's very exciting because as you and I will talk about later on, getting uric acid under control is not that difficult. It's actually very straightforward. It's incredible. So let's, for the listener who may not be familiar with some of the uh, constituents of gout, let's talk about what a purine is. So what, what are purines? 
Purines are the normal breakdown product of the DNA and the RNA that's found in foods. Foods that are higher in these purines uh, or providing purines are foods that are much denser in terms of their cellularity, more cells, more tightly packed, uh, and therefore there's more DNA and RNA in these cells. So certain foods, for example, like organ meats, like liver and uh, kidney and game, uh, venison, for example, shellfish like mussels and scallops, and even truthfully certain vegetables, although uh, although the meat-related uh, purines can raise uric acid, it's been demonstrated that you can have the you can consume high purine vegetables, like for example the cruciferous vegetables, and it is associated actually with a lowering of the uric acid because of some offsets uh, that those vegetables provide, like dietary fiber, like uh, certain bioflavonoids like quercetin that actually. Uh, leads to lowering of the uric acid. Uh, we'll definitely want to look at quercetin a little bit later on. We talk about nutritional supplements. But um, the, the truth on uh, the purines is that two-thirds of the purines circulating in your body are actually made from the breakdown of your own tissue. When you exercise, for example, break down muscle tissue, you are liberating a lot of purines into your system. It turns out that it's interesting, and as part of a, a diet to lower uric acid, it's something to be considering, uh, as is alcohol as well. And we'll talk about the types of alcohol in just a moment. But the biggest player by far and away uh, is the fructose consumption that is so pervasive uh, amongst uh, humans now. You know, the, the average uric acid uh, in North America was about 3.5 in the 1920s. Now it's six. And it has paralleled uh, in lockstep uh, our ever increasing consumption of sugar. So, you know, the average uh, American, I, I suspect it's the same in Canada, consumes somewhere north of 50 pounds of sugar uh, each year. That's, that's uh, um, five 10 pound bowling balls of sugar uh, every single year. And now, you know, we've known that's not a good thing. When, but we've been focusing for a long time on the fact that it's a glucose load, right? Because table sugar, sucrose, is 50% glucose and 50% fructose. So we really focused on the glucose. Why? because it's that glucose that stimulates the insulin production. Therefore, high levels of glucose, higher levels of insulin, we become insulin resistant. We develop insulin resistance because we have so much glucose floating around. Next thing you know, we're a diabetic. And we've said, I don't know if we've said it, but it's been said over the years that, well, fructose, because it doesn't use insulin for its metabolism, might be a safer choice. Therefore, let's go all in on the high fructose corn syrup, et cetera. Well, it turns out that fructose indeed is related to the production of insulin resistance and raises blood sugar, blood glucose. So that it's anything but a safer sugar. It's in fact even more threatening because it's not just blood sugar that it targets. It also increases blood pressure and it also directly leads to what we call lipogenesis, the creation of body fat. And you know, for most people, that's not necessarily uh, what, what they want to do. So we know now that uh, in North America, more than 60% of the packaged foods in the grocery store have added sweetener. And by and large, these are either high fructose corn syrup or derivatives of high fructose corn syrup having 
lots and lots of fructose because it's cheaper and it's sweeter than glucose. So we're really favoring more and more the addition of fructose to our foods and watching uh, these skyrocketing rates of obesity, of hypertension, uh, and certainly uh, diabetes. We know that here in America, there are uh, close to uh, 80 million pre-diabetics and about 34 million already diabetics. Uh, so this is about you know 45% of adults in, here in, in America. I'm, I'm certain it's the same in Canada or close. Uh, that, you know, we're talking about 45% are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. We know that uh, 88% of American adults has at least one component of what we call the metabolic syndrome. And that means that only about one in eight adults here is metabolically intact. And I submit that fructose is the biggest player. And now we understand why. It's through this alarm system called uric acid, raising the alarm that winter's coming, make the body fat, raise the blood pressure. So when we target that uric acid and bring it under control uh, by lowering our fructose consumption, for example, increasing our vitamin C, taking nutritional supplements that help to lower uric acid, uh, it's a huge leap forward. So let's let's talk about the metabolism of fructose and how it is uh, mechanistically different from glucose. One of the things, you know, listeners of this podcast for many years will know, glucose, subst you know, it's the molecule of life, as Dr. Robert Lustig uh, on our show has uh, said. We take glucose into the cell and we create ATP from it through, you know, the, the tricarboxylic acid cycle. But fructose is different, even though it is the same, uh, you know, it looks, uh, it doesn't have the exact same structure. They're both uh, carbon rings, but there's just one little difference on the fructose um, uh, chain that makes it very different in terms of its, 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 um, its metabolism. So let's talk about how fructose, instead of being a a uh, substrate for energy energy production is actually one of the ways that we deplete our cells of energy or ATP. That's right. And uh, interestingly, the way that fructose is metabolized is the identical pathway uh, by which we metabolize alcohol. And what, what your friend, Dr. Robert Lustig has said is that fructose is alcohol without the buzz. And I love that because uh, you know, it offers us up nothing. I mean, our uh, nutritional requirement of fructose is zero. And yet, you know, look what's happening now. But um, you quite uh, correctly identify glucose as the, uh, um, the molecule for energy production because it does allow through the, the Krebs cycle, the production uh, and glycolysis as well, the production of these ATP uh, molecules, whereas fructose is the molecule of energy storage, getting ready for use of uh, energy in the future. And while their chemical formula is exactly the same, they are structurally different and they are as different as night and day. It's, it's unfortunate that, you know, it's well, fructose sugar, lactose sugar, glucose sugar, they're all sugars. We sort of look at them, you know, we studied them on the same day in biochemistry class, but they are so different. And 
glucose metabolism is an energy producing, you know, it's something that allows us to metabolize. Whereas the uh, production of uh, energy storage is what happens when fructose is metabolized. Whereas glucose produces these ATP currency of energy molecules, uh, fructose actually takes ATP and reduces it down to AMP uh, and therefore de uh, depletes intracellular phosphate. And that is a huge event. That change from ATP to AMP, a adenosine triphosphate down to adenosine monophosphate, that depletion of this intracellular phosphate, signals our bodies to prepare for winter. It changes our entire metabolism away from energy utilization to energy storage. And it is what happens, for example, in a bear. If a bear is getting, as bears prepare to hibernate, they turn off a certain pathway that's called AMP kinase, which would otherwise keep that bear lean and mean fighting machine. And it shifts that metabolism over to AMP deaminase. And what AMP deaminase does is it says, raise the blood sugar, become insulin resistant and make a lot of fat. And that's what the bear is doing by eating fructose left, right, and center. Uh, you know, uh, 10, 20 pounds of uh, berries in a single day to get ready to store that fat so that he or she can survive during, during the time of hibernation. Then during hibernation, the animal's tapping into its uh, energy resource, which is the body fat, and using that energy resource uh, as a uh, caloric depot, and also interestingly, as a source of metabolic water. When the bear or you or I burn fat, we're creating water in our bodies. So uh, this body fat that it stores is not just a, uh, a calorie resource, but it's a resource to make metabolic water because it doesn't eat all winter when it's hibernating, nor does it drink. And it explains why, for example, the camel, I love this example, you know, it's walking across the desert for weeks at a time and doesn't drink any water. Why? Because what is the most identifying characteristic of the, of the camel? The hump. What's inside the hump? It's not water, it's fat. So it has a resource for energy. It has a resource to make what's called metabolic water, like whales do, uh, like the hummingbird does. You know, the hummingbird, when it's getting ready to fly from where you live to where I live, uh, is 40% body weight fat. And that's its resource, not just for calories to make the epic journey, but for water as well, metabolic water. And if you want honey, uh, hummingbirds in your backyard, what do you put out there? You put out sugar water. It's fructose that tells that hummingbird, get ready for your epic journey. Same thing happens in your body and my body and in the body of everybody on the planet. And that is that we are very parsimonious or thrifty as it uh, relates to the calories that we consume, specifically those signaling calories, which are the sugars and specifically fructose. Our Paleolithic and even our prim primate ancestors would eat these berries and other fruits in the late summer and in the early fall because they were sweet. Uh, and that's why we like sweet to this day. There's nobody uh, who will tell you, no, I don't like sweets. Uh, we choose not to eat them because we know they're bad for us, right? But we like them. So we all have that sweet tooth cooking in the background, but we're bringing on our prefrontal cortex saying, yeah, I really want to eat those sweets. 
uh, but I know it's not good for me. Would I like to drink a Coke? I would. I absolutely would put a Coke, uh, drink a Coke, pour it over ice, have a straw. That would taste, I would still probably enjoy that or a Dr. Pepper, one of my favorites. But yet, uh, that's my, you know, amygdala brain saying, sweet, seek it out for survival. That's going to help you live. My more uh, adult in the room part of the brain is saying, yeah, but you don't want to do that, do you? You know what that's going to do to your insulin levels, what, what is it going to do to your fatty liver, increasing that and all the, the stuff. So we override these primal instincts. Those primal instincts allowed us to survive because sweet prepared us for winter. Sweet identified fruits as being safe. There aren't any fruits that are sweet uh, that are harmful for us. They're not, you know, there's no poisonous sweet out there. So we, you know, we, we refined our genome and uh, our brain wiring to uh, give us this desire for sweet and the little dopamine rush that we get when we eat it. Uh, but nowadays, hopefully, we are able to bring on board our prefrontal cortex and override the, the amygdala and, and make better choices. Getting back to a conversation you and I had last time uh, I was on your program. So it's a very interesting story. And I have to tell you that um, my interest in this uh, evolutionary environmental mismatch. That's what our problem is now, that we've evolved with this desire for sweet and this ability to make fat when we eat that sweet uh, in a different environment, environment of food scarcity, an environment in which uh, we might be threatened as well. When we were hungry, not only could we not find food, but we might be eaten by an animal that notices that we're kind of staggering around, can't make good decisions because our brain isn't powered. We evolved these mechanisms to make sugar to power our brain. So we have this evolutionary environmental mismatch today where our environment is giving us all this fructose. Uh, we don't need to do much in our physical world. We don't have to sleep very much or we choose not to rather. So this uh, evolutionary environmental mismatch has been uh, something I've been interested in for more than uh, half a century. I, mean, I, I wrote my first article about this, published it uh, in um, 1971 when I was 16 years old uh, in the Miami Herald. And I asked the question, what about us who are living today with this outdated machinery? That was my conclusion, because we're not going to evolve quickly enough to be able to tolerate the fructose, the sodium. We'll get to that you know, the high level of purines in our diets and certainly the alcohol that we are consuming. You bring up uh, a real, I want to come back to AMPD and AMPK in a, a minute, but just talking and uh, from our ancestors um, in the book, you talk about this. Um, I, I believe it was apes who uh, developed this or they, there was an environmental selection for apes that had this enzyme fructokinase. And that's essentially the apes that ended, or I guess they were in the, um, you know, the homo sapien lineage, let's say, and they ended up sort of seeding, um, you know, who you and I are and, you know, the, the current um, uh, evolution of, of homo sapiens are. Can you talk a little bit about what that evolutionary uh, selection was? And, you know, it's pairing up perfectly with what you're talking about in terms of this modern evolutionary mismatch in terms of now we don't necessarily ever worry about famine. We don't ever worry about having to hunt and not knowing when the next kill is going to come, et cetera. Can you, can you speak to this evolutionary um, selective bias around sure. It's really just um, it's a it's just a breathtaking story 
because and, and I'll I'll recount that in just a moment. But for me, it it's been so exciting because in everything I do uh, professionally right now, as it relates to clinical work or metabol looking at metabolism, etc., I always ask myself now, and I didn't do this so much before. Why might this have been an advantage in the past? Uh, and for example, we, we talk about you're at increased risk for Alzheimer's if you carry the APOE4 allele. And so, so, so that's a bad thing. Why would you want to have that? Why would you want to have this uricase mutation so you have a higher uric acid? Why would you want to, you know, have uh, foreign body fat from fructose? Why would, th those are obviously bad. Why would, uh, why would I be saying that, for example, insulin resistance might be a good thing? Because it's in the context of now versus then. Because back then, APOE4 allele increased inflammation, which was protective. Because back then, having this uricase mutation made ultimately more body fat and allowed us to survive. So between 14 and 17 million years ago, a long time ago, during what is called the Middle Miocene period, the Earth cooled over a million years. So it's not something that happened very quickly. So it, it's an environmental pressure, but it's a very slow acting one. And at, as the earth cooled, less food was available for our primate ancestors. So they had to do more with less. And one of the mutations that happened, actually it was a series of mutations, happened in what is called the uricase gene, the gene that's, or suite of genes, that um, is involved in the main, in the making in the body of an enzyme called uricase. Uric as in uric acid, case as in it breaks it down. So we lost, or our primate ancestors lost over a million years, the ability to make this enzyme uricase. And as such, our uric acid levels over time increased uh, more and more. Now, this gave a slight advantage to those primates who had these mutations and had lost their uricase, therefore their uric acid levels went up. That elevated uric acid gave them a superpower. And what was that superpower? More body fat. So they're the ones who survived and were able to pass on their genetic material, uh, that uricase mutation, as opposed to those who didn't have it. We inherited that. We don't have in our bodies uricase. We don't break down uric acid using uh, uricase. So our uric acid levels are four to five times higher than other uh, mammals, for example. And it was a survival mechanism until very recently. Even our Paleolithic ancestors, even you know, just before the onset of uh, agriculture, when was that? 14 to 17,000 years ago, uh, we were basically hunting and gathering and having that advantage of being able to make a little bit more body fat was even advantageous back then. Today, it's not that way. Now we're targeting that physiology uh, to make us fatter. That same mechanism that allowed our survival for millions of years, if you include our primate ancestors, is now directly responsible for the number one cause today of death on planet Earth. It is not an infectious viral agent. The number one cause of death today, according to the World Health Organization, are the chronic degenerative conditions like Alzheimer's, coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, and even some forms of cancer. And the relationship is really uh, quite, uh, quite complete.
a study that was published, a collaborative study uh, in Japan, uh, looking at 90,000 people, 42,000 men, 48,000 women, followed them uh, for eight years. And what did they find? Uh, they only looked at one thing at the beginning of the study, what is your uric acid level? And then they followed the, this huge group of people for uh, eight years. Those who had the highest uric acid level above seven had a 16% increased risk of what is called all-cause mortality. It basically means dying of anything. Uh, they had a 39% increased risk of cardiovascular death, basically a heart attack. They had a 35% increased risk of dying of stroke. So this is pretty profound, talking about cardiometabolic types of issues. Uh, and I find really quite compelling the fact that for every point elevation above seven, there was an eight to 13% increased risk of death, again, from all causes. So uh, every point increased that risk of death even further. That's a pretty profound relationship. And I think it really helps solidify our understanding of the mechanism and we which we know but why it's really important you know we're we're out there fighting to survive face it you know now uh longevity is declining in north america and that happened before COVID. that we reached the top and now we're starting to lose ground and without question it's because of the aggressive changes to our metabolism that we are inducing in ourselves by signaling this and certainly other mechanisms as well. So would you, would you say then that uric acid, um, would, would that be a reasonable proxy that might indirectly tell us what our fructose consumption would look like in the same way that we might look in glucose, we might, we might look at an HbA1c, let's say, to look at the average three months of glycated end products. Would, would uric acid levels be, um, you know, is, is, is uric acid, let's say, an HbA1c equivalent for fructose? Um, I would say that after you get the baseline, it would be. So the hemoglobin A1C is standardized, right? So we know what so-called normal levels are and what uh, abnormal levels are. Uh, but I would say as it relates to the individual, you would first need to get a baseline and then follow fructose consumption and see what the changes are. But yes, and one other thing I'll, I'll say about fructose that's really, I think, very important is it is like glucose, a highly glycating, uh, uh, or in this case, you know, uh, it, it, it binds to proteins in a very similar way. In fact, more aggressively than glucose does, and therefore leads to those uh, issues with protein, like increased oxidative stress, increased inflammation. So in and of itself, even before you get to the uric acid, which is a powerful uh, increasing event as it relates to inflammation uh, and oxidative stress itself. Um, not to mention, and now I'll mention, why do people say not to mention? Then they mention it, right? <laughs> not to mention, but I will mention, I will mention actually, or it goes without saying, and now I'll say it, uh, that, you know, very important thing that uric acid does uniquely after it has been formed from fructose primarily, but also alcohol and purines, is it inhibits nitric oxide. And why should we care? Because nitric oxide we know is important as it relates to the uh, dilatation or the opening up of blood vessels that something we need to get blood to our organs. 
uh, like the brain and the heart and the kidney, et cetera. Uh, and that when nitric oxide's not working effectively, the blood vessels can't relax and therefore the blood pressure goes up. That's how uric acid keeps the blood pressure up. For example, in our ancestors when they were dehydrated and couldn't find water. That was the upside of it. It also explains why high uric acid is strongly correlated with erectile dysfunction. And here's another aspect of nitric oxide that's not well known, but really actually very important. Nitric oxide in the blood vessel is fundamentally important to allow insulin to make its way through the lining of the blood vessel and then into the cell or to bind to the cell and then allow that cell to take in glucose. So there's a direct relationship then between how insulin is able to do its job and uric acid via this nitric oxide connection. So, uh, and again, you know, in the context of why, why was that a good thing? Because it was good to become uh, insulin resistant in the day when, you know, our only high card, the best thing we had, we're not the strongest, fastest animal in the forest, but maybe we were clever or, I, you know, maybe we were the smartest. These days you kind of wonder, uh, but uh, that was the thing that kept us from being eaten by other animals uh, and gave us the superpower to maybe find food when things were scarce. So it's always been in our interest to power the brain. We have a default mechanism in, uh, available to us when we're starving that we can power the brain with fat uh, via ketones. Uh, but having said that, you know, the brain does really well on glucose quickly. And that's, you know, its functionality is something that needs to be preserved, uh, uh, you know, again, uh, at all costs to keep us to keep us alive. So let's let's come back to uh, uric acid. And then I want to talk just a little bit about this AMPD versus AMPK pathway, because I think this will really um, drive it home for our listeners. So when we when we're consuming fructose, let's say, or the more sugar that you consume, the higher that your serum uric acid levels are going to be. So the more risk you have for gout and insulin resistance and all the things that we've been talking about. And I, um, and you can correct me here if I, if I misspeak, but fructose, when it enters, let's say the liver, which is where it's primarily uh, metabolized, um, it has to, we have to take a phosphate from somewhere, right? And it's going to be from ATP, spoiler alert, to, in order to start that metabolic process. So we steal right. essentially this this phosphate group from ATP, ATP, and we go through this again until we get, get to AMP. And then we have this um, scavenger enzyme, let's call it, uh, AMP, like adenosine deaminase, so this AMPD. And there's almost like at this point where you're at AMP, or maybe it's maybe one more step, but just for the sake of simplicity, we have AMP. And then there's this fork in the road, let's say. So you can almost go down the AMPK kinase, uh, or sorry, the AMPK uh, pathway or the AMPD pathway. What is the determining factor that that determines whether or not we go into burning fat with AMPK or storing fat with AMPD. This, and, and this is really part of the, uh, for me, excitement. I think perhaps for you, the excitement is to finally understand this stuff, right? Uh, it now makes so much sense that, you know, your body has to have a way um, of determining, is it feast or famine? Do I have enough food or do I need to start storing food because boy, I might get into trouble. And this switch between AMP deaminase and AMP kinase 
is the determinant of that. And when AMP kinase is active, hey, the body thinks the hunting is good. So it says, we don't need to store fat. Uh, we can burn fat and we don't need to make sugar, make glucose because we the hunting is good. We've got plenty of fuel. And you know that's pretty much what we all want to keep active. We want to keep our AMP kinase active all the time. And one of the most potent ways of activating AMP kinase is to exercise. That's you know dramatically turns on. It's why it, one of the reasons we we exercise. It helps keep our blood sugars down. In fact, that's where the drug metformin used in diabetes works. Because when you turn on, you activate AMP kinase, you turn off a process called gluconeogenesis, meaning the new neo production of glucose in your body. Uh, that's shut off when AMP kinase is activated because we don't need it. The hunting is good. On the other hand, the other pathway is valuable too. Uh, we, we say we don't like that because we're making body fat and raising the blood sugar and blood pressure, all those things. But the reality is take a step back and in the context of history, powerful survival mechanism. But nowadays we don't want to be activating a pathway in our bodies that's making body fat and locking it up so we have no access to it. We want to stay with AMP kinase. So the question is, what, what is the switch? What turns on AMP kinase or turns it off? And there are two very important uh, processes. The first is the sense of the drop of the intracellular phosphate. It's the metabolism of fructose. Suddenly we're metabolizing fructose, that intracellular AMP uh, is formed from ATP, that drop in the intracellular phosphate, that says, hey, winter's coming, make it happen, shift to AMP deaminase, make fat, store fat, because you're gonna need it if you're going to survive. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. Then the product of fructose metabolism is uric acid. And that does the same thing. So it's just in case it didn't happen to enough uh, greatest uh, extent, we're gonna let the uric acid amplify that process even further because the uric acid is this really fundamental alarm system. So we have two ways of really keeping that switch over to make fat, store fat, raise blood sugar and raise blood pressure, uh, just to be on the safe side. So we see a lot of that. Uh, uric acid even feeds back to an enzyme called fructokinase. Fructokinase is that first enzyme in the metabolism of fructose that does what? Further consumes ATP, further locks us into this AMP deaminase part of the of the of the flow chart, and tells us that you know it's doing everything it can to allow us to survive in uh, the times of food scarcity. So. 
You know, unlike so many pathways in physiology that um, at the end of the pathway, it'll feed back to turn it off, right? That's how it works. Uh, for example, if our blood sugar shoots up, then we make insulin. Insulin helps us then to bring homeostasis into play and lowers our blood sugar. And then the insulin level has a homeostatic mechanism that lets it lower itself as well. But that's not the case here. This is a what we call a feed forward process where once you started, it tends to amplify itself as a survival mechanism. So uh, the story even becomes more complex when we, uh, but exciting, I guess I'll get excited about this stuff. Uh, when we realize that it's not just the fructose we consume, but we can do things in our bodies to actually amplify our own production endogenously of fructose as a survival mechanism, such that even if we couldn't find fructose when we're hunting and gathering and turn on the mechanisms to make fat, we still have mechanisms whereby we can make fructose in our bodies and still then increase our uric acid, make more body fat and survive. And that's pretty exciting because some of the things that turn that process on, this so-called polyol pathway, converting glucose into fructose are things that we do every day, like eating a lot of salt, you know, sitting down, eating a bag of salted chips to watch the playoffs, uh, that raises our blood uh, sodium level. And that turns on this polyol pathway that says, oh, we're dehydrated. Why, do, why would that make us think we're dehydrated? Because our sodium is going up. That's what happens when we get dehydrated. Well, our bodies sense that and turn on the production of fructose because fructose can help us when it's metabolized, make body fat. Well, what role does that have to play with respect to dehydration? Remember, body fat produces metabolic water. And that's why eating a salty meal increases our body fat so that our bodies don't dehydrate as readily. We make metabolic water from body fat. This is, um, this is like the super geeky part that I get so excited about because in your book, you were talking about how uric acid can um, directly influence hypertension. So high blood pr pressure, you've already mentioned um, the oxidative stress, which constricts the blood vessels in, in influencing NO. Um, but now we're kind of moving into this salt um, the salt story. And um, the prevailing thought is that, you know, salt, too much salt elevates um, your, and your, your blood pressure. And the advice is to sort of restrict the amount of salt intake. But it's really, um, it's the amount of salt, uh, it's not the amount of salt that you're taking in, but it's the salt concentration, like the, uh, the osmolarity, if you will, of like, how, you know, if you just had a pretzel uh, versus maybe you had some salt water, which is some, I, I take electrolytes and it's salty and, and because I tend to eat a ketogenic style diet. Those two are, they're very different pictures. And I wondered if you could expand a little bit on that. That's right. And very well said. So uh, what the research demonstrated in humans was that uh, giving uh, sodium, a sodium load, will raise serum sodium and trigger this entire mechanism uh, as opposed to giving the exact same amount of sodium but with uh, added water and basically to dilute it out. So it's, it is exactly related to serum osmolarity as you well characterize. And uh, it can be overridden by simply consuming a lot of water. So, you know, using an electrolyte product, if you're exercising aggressively, or another time would be on a ketogenic diet where you're losing electrolytes or diluting them out, um, 
and to sub, uh, supplement yourself with a, uh, a low level of extra sodium along with potassium magnesium makes good sense. But you know, when those products are used, they're used diluted in water. And that's exactly what you're referring to. So let, let's talk about why salt, and you may have mentioned it, but I just want to double click on this, that when you are consu- when you're increasing the salt concentration, so you're increasing salt in the absence of increasing your water intake, how does this increase fructose production? Well, as you drink, as you drink some water, as you're I, watching you, you this made on me YouTube. do that. <laughs> it was a prop. So uh, the real specifics are as follows: the um, what happens as serum sodium goes up is we stimulate uh, activation of an enzyme called aldose aldose reductase, and what aldose reductase is involved in. Uh, is the conversion of blood sugar, glucose, into fructose. So that's the specifics. And in fact, it's a little bit more complicated that, than that. There is an intermediate called sorbitol. Actually, let's, that's kind of an interesting thing. And, and that then uh, is, is produced, uh, uh, produces sorbitol hydroxylates, which then goes on to form the fructose. The only reason I mention that, so it's a little bit more complicated, but the main sensing enzyme here that gets the whole thing underway is this aldose reductase enzyme activation as brought on by elevation of the serum sodium, uh, brought on by hypoxia, for example. We'll talk about that in just a moment because it's actually very interesting. So those two things turn on the body's production of fructose as a survival mechanism. The only reason I broke it down a little bit more, I haven't done this before, uh, but uh, I just think it's valuable because this sorbitol intermediate between glucose and fructose it's interesting because sorbitol is actually used as a so-called artificial sweetener, right? You see it on packages. And why would you want to give the precursor to fructose, which we readily metabolize into fructose? Doesn't make sense. The reason it, it got the go-ahead is nobody understood this stuff before. So uh, just a take-home little nugget there is don't use sorbitol as an artificial sweetener because it becomes fructose, which then um, fans the flames of this entire process. So I did mention hypoxia, and interestingly, uh, I'm not talking about climbing K2 here. I'm talking about um, the notion of becoming hypoxic, for example, because you have sleep apnea. So many people don't realize it, but during the course of their sleeping, uh, their uh, saturations, their uh, amount of oxygen carried in the blood called saturation may decline. Uh, and it may be a significant decline and, uh, you know, even a subtle decline of blood oxygenation at any time, but in this case during sleep, activates this aldose reductase enzyme and begins this process of converting your blood sugar into fructose. Uh, not that it drops your blood sugar to any significant degree, but it raises the fructose in your body, which does what? Increases fat production. And by and large, one of the biggest issues for this sleep apnea in the first place is being overweight. So being overweight, having you know a big belly, it tends to lead to sleep uh, apnea. Uh, there are other causes, of course. Uh, and then that does what? Increases your body fat production. So it explains a lot. Uh, it explains to me this relationship that we've seen, we've known about for many years between sleep apnea and risk for diabetes and risk for hypertension and risk for Alzheimer's and coronary artery disease, metabolic issues now brought on by simply being hypoxic, 
well, what was the mechanism? Well, we didn't really know, but we, we saw that there was a relationship. But now we know uh, that, uh, you know, it may well be through this activation of fructose production and increased inflammation and lipogenesis via increase in uric acid. So uric acid is the player. You know, when we see now a very powerful study that demonstrated that if you're admitted to the hospital because you are suffering from COVID, that if at the time of your admission, they noticed that, or they, in the study, that, that you had a high uric acid level, that you triple your risk of entering the ICU, being put on a ventilator, uh, and even of death. So this elevation of uric acid profoundly enhances inflammation. And inflammation is really gets people in trouble COVID-related. It's this cytokine storm uh, that, uh, you know, people are now aware of this overwhelming big storm of uh, inflammatory chemicals and uric acid increases the production of these inflammatory markers, these cytokines. And it doesn't have to be necessarily a storm to cause a problem. We know uh, in one study that looked at individuals over 12 year period of time uh, and did a cognitive assessment every two years it found that those people who originally, the beginning of the 12-year study, 1,600 people, that those who had uh, a uric acid level uh, greater than 7 milligrams per deciliter had a 80% increased risk of dementia, a 55% increased risk of specifically Alzheimer's dementia, and a 166% increased risk of what is called mixed dementia or vascular dementia, in relationship to having a high uric acid. How does that segue with my previous conversation about cytokines? Because we need to begin talking not about cytokine storm, that's important, but what is called cytokine drizzle. In other words, this low level of increase in inflammation over a long period of time. Yeah, you can have a tsunami that takes away a landmass. That's the cytokine storm. But you can also have a little river that flows very slowly over time. The next thing you know, if you play it out over a long period of time, you get the Grand Canyon. So either a big force acting quickly, the cytokine storm, or a smaller force acting over a much longer time, decades. That's what we see. For example, in Alzheimer's, it's this slow, uh, progressive increase in inflammation over time that's not really alarming acutely, uh, but, but ultimately damages tissues and causes things like coronary artery disease, an inflammation of the lining of the arteries going to the heart, or Alzheimer's, which is an inflammatory issue of the brain. And now that we know that uric acid is playing a role, it's really important to know what your level is and if it's elevated, in, as uh, for our discussion, anything over 5.5 milligrams per deciliter, you better pay attention to that. And getting it lowered is not that difficult. And checking it at home is not that difficult. You can go online and buy a uric acid monitor just like you, you get check your own blood sugar at home, a little finger stick. Here's mine. Here's my uric acid monitor. And there is my most recent level, 4.7 a finger stick. And I do this, you know, it's not something you have to do all the time. You do it every two weeks, every four weeks. It's not going to change uh, as, as readily unless you make changes in your diet. But it's really um, uric acid now joins ranks with blood pressure and blood sugar 
and BMI as being a powerful metric as it relates to our metabolic health. In, in preparation for my conversation with you, I was reviewing, of course, being a neurologist, I figured we might be talking about Alzheimer's, brain health, and uric acid. And it does seem to be that there are some reports that AMPD, so we were talking before about that bifurcation exactly right. in the pathway, AMPD levels are elevated in the brains of some Alzheimer's patients, which is very- Oh, no, really? It's, uh, it's really quite pervasive. Yes. Yeah. So I thought that that was an interesting observation. And of course, we know that, you know, uh, and you talked about this in the book about this type three diabetes, which you were just mentioning, this sort of insulin resistance in the brain. I guess my question, and this might just be my own lack of informa- my own lack of understanding, which is why I love podcasts like this, because I get to ask the, the, esper- uh, the experts, but does the brain use fructose? Do we have the fructokinase uh, and the whole pathway that all exists in the brain as well? And I know that yes, that may be do. a silly and question. That's, but, that's yeah. really uh, a relatively new uh, understanding that the brain uh, not only can, utilizes fructose, but actually the polyol pathway, the production of fructose in the brain is, uh, the brain has the ability to do that. Uh, and beyond that, uh, one very recent study demonstrated that in Alzheimer's patients, fructose and its precursor, which is sorbitol, levels are at least four to, and perhaps five-fold increased uh, in comparison to non-Alzheimer's brains. So doesn't that explain a whole heck of a lot? And yes, to be sure, this AMP deaminase pathway is dramatically upregulated in the Alzheimer's brain. So there's so much uh, understanding that we're getting now um, that we didn't have before. And, and, and the reason it becomes uh, so exciting uh, because is because these are going to be new tools for us. That then this metabolism of, uh, of fructose, because of the downstream issues with increasing inflammation, increasing oxidative stress, and therefore damaging mitochondria, which is, you know, Alzheimer's is ultimately a energy failure in the brain, that this can be uh, p- perhaps in the future inhibited as we target the enzyme fructokinase. So there is in development right now by major pharmaceutical companies, uh, the, the, the idea of inhibiting fructokinase. Why would that be incredibly valuable? Well, first, because uh, it, it, the laboratory studies on animals show that you can load them up with all the fructose you want. If you inhibit fructokinase, they don't develop uh, the the metabolic issues. Uh, That even when we look at animal models of uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, load them up with fructose, they don't get non-alcoholic fatty liver disease if you inhibit the metabolism by inhibiting that enzyme, fructokinase. But here's even more exciting information. If you take laboratory animals, rodents, and you give them alcohol, which would normally produce this alcohol now related fatty liver disease, but you block the fructokinase, they don't develop fatty liver disease, even when they're getting alcohol. And what does that tell us? It tells us that the way that alcohol, at least in laboratory animals, produces fatty liver disease is via the increased production of fructose, and then the metabolism of fructose. Wow, that's pretty exciting. So, you know, the idea that fructokinase inhibiting uh, drugs are being developed uh, is playing upon the science, 
Um, and we know, for example, that there are um, a very small number of people who have an inherited uh, enzyme defect. They don't have fructokinase. They have uh, inherited fructose urea, where they just, whatever fructose they consume, they basically excrete in their urine. And they can eat and drink all the fructose they want. They can drink sodas day in and day out, and they don't get uh, fatty liver disease. They don't get the metabolic issues. I mean, they and they don't get fat. They can just eat fructose all day long. Now, I'm sure there is some downside, but it does tend to solidify our understanding of what that uh, metabolic pathway uh, is doing in terms of giving us some pretty powerful opportunities in the future. Meanwhile, right now, today, what can you do? Two things, reduce fructose consumption dramatically and reduce the activation of our fructose production in our body by limiting our salt consumption, making sure that we're uh, not dehydrated, making sure that we don't get hypoxic at, at night by being having sleep apnea, and watching our alcohol consumption as well. And you've long been an advocate for uh, the ketogenic diet, of course, for its cognitive, for its brain health, you know, in terms of improving brain uh, capacity and, you know, brain health over the long, uh, over the long term. Um, one of the things that you discussed in the book, which I thought was really interesting, is that people who um, initially maybe go on a ketogenic diet, if they are watching their uric acid levels, that we may see this transient increase in UA levels. Um but when you had in the book, you sort of counsel people to sort of stay the course. How do you um, how do you reconcile this, dis, this this discrepancy between going on a ketogenic diet and seeing this you know elevation at least transiently in uric acid levels? And what is the expectation over the long term? Sure. So why might that be? I mean, uh, you know, in our past, when we became ketogenic, why did that happen? We were fasting right? Couldn't find food. We started burning. We burned through our glycogen in a day, and now we're burning our body fat as a survival mechanism. And so why would, would then that be a great time to activate uric acid? Uh, because we don't have food and we need to uh, do everything we can to ramp down our metabolism, make sure we, so we, we keep our food resources, our, our caloric resources, if you will. So that all makes very good sense. Uh, they, there are upsides of ketogenic diet that you've talked about extensively over the years. And then in terms of improving insulin sensitivity and reducing inflammation, uh, even in terms of targeting um, certain methylation uh, uh, epigenetic pathways that are designed to keep us healthy. Uh, but that said, the point is well taken that we should expect uric acid levels to go up when we are fasting or otherwise uh, on a ketogenic diet. But the net benefit at the end of the day is positive because once you resume regular eating, uh, that your uric acid levels are going to be exactly where they were before or slightly lower. Lower now because you've really improved other aspects of your metabolic pathways uh, that have a bearing on uric acid production. So it shouldn't be a surprise though that being uh, in ketosis is going to translate and bump up the uric acid. It isn't dramatic, but I wanted to put that in the book so that people... Um, who are getting into ketosis from time to time, which I think is a really valuable thing, or fasting from time to time, uh, don't you know? Don't get excited when the uric acid actually goes up. Oh, I'm going on the ketogenic diet. I heard it was so wonderful, but look at my uric acid levels. It's it's a good thing. One step back, two steps forward. But I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and I and I think that this is why a low carbohydrate or a ketogenic diet is so valuable for 
for individuals who are metabolically ill. And it was, you know, kind of piggybacking on what you had just said around, you know, if you cut, if an individual cuts out sugar, let's say, but they continue to consume carbohydrates and they've already activated this aldose reductase, they're still going to be producing that fructose from excess glucose. Like they're, they're still going to be converting the glucose to the fructose via this carbohydrate um, consumption. So I think that it's, it's so, um, it's so valuable to even, you know, and, and I, I've talked about this and I know I've been on your podcast talking about, you know, the ketogenic diet for women. I think that this pulsatile phasic, um, you know, when we are sometimes in ketosis and sometimes not, it's like you sort of pull it back, you get into ketosis, you're using ketones as this, you know, mitochondrial uncoupler and, and epigenetic signaler. Um, but then you also have times where you're not um, so that we can, you know, maintain insulin sensitivity, as you said, and, and continue to sort of keep things in, in, in in the best sort of homeostatic balance that we can. Well, that the notion of cycling you brought out in your book, and I thought it's, that that's really valuable. That's really extremely valuable. Uh, I, I, you know, and, and that clearly would emulate what our paleo ancestors would have experienced: feasts and famine. You know, the notion of always locking into ketosis. You know, and yet there are uh, interventional trials where that is done for a period of time. We've seen one in Parkinson's and then Alzheimer's. Uh, Matthew Phillips in New Zealand is doing those, has done those, published them. Um, but I think, as you well point out, uh, this metabolic flexibility is really seemingly the goal today and, and with good reason. But, you know, again, when we look at it through the lens of what is it, how is it signaling this survival pathway, it makes total sense. You're in ketosis, your body says, whoa, we're burning fat, there's no food, bump up the uric acid, that'll uh, specifically slow metabolism. How does it do that? It does so by the increased oxidative stress uh, from the uric acid, directly increases oxidative stress intracellularly, and that affects mitochondrial function. Therefore, metabolism is compromised. And um, it, is, you know, it threatens uh, the viability of mitochondria and, and, and the functionality of mitochondria. One recent study carried out by a Dr. Richard Johnson, one of the investigators at um, University of Colorado, put people on an extremely low fructose and low sodium uh, diet and demonstrated in the uh, mitochondria count of white blood cells uh, an increase of 1000% uh, after several weeks of being on that diet in humans. So, uh, you know, what a great tool uh, to upregulate uh, mitochondrial biogenesis. I mean, you know, there are other things that we've talked about before, you know, looking at the mTOR pathway, et cetera, uh, looking at the notion of getting rid of bad or def defective mitochondria through augmenting, enhancing mitophagy. But what an interesting approach then to increasing the pure mitochondrial count via reducing oxidative stress because we're going to turn off that polyol pathway. We're not going to make fructose and by reducing the sodium. And we are going to reduce the consumption dramatically of fructose. So we're getting rid of the fructose we take in, reducing the fructose that we make. But I think um, it's sticking in my mind, this notion that uh, in Alzheimer's brains, there's this dramatic uptick in the production of fructose from glucose. And that glucose levels in the brain are elevated in the Alzheimer's brain in comparison to non-Alzheimer's patients as well. And that forces this whole polyol pathway to make then uh, this fructose. So, you know, we thought, oh gosh, there's a problem with um, 
getting glucose into the brain in Alzheimer's because the transporter mechanisms in the blood-brain barrier, insulin dependent, might not work as well. But the reality is in many parts of the brain, the blood glucose, the glucose levels are much higher, but it's a question of then the utilization of, of that glucose. Uh, and this insulin resistance is exacerbated as the fructose levels climb. Gosh, it's, uh, you, know, you and I could have had this conversation a couple of years ago and wouldn't have, there would have been a lot of holes in it, but it's really, it's really coming together. It's like finding the corner pieces on a jigsaw puzzle. You go, whoa, you know, I just connected the barn with the river and this is a great moment. Uh, as a puzzler, I really appreciate that because that's, I often do puzzles. That's my sort of way to, to, um, to, you know, uncheck from the world, de you know, to have, oh, it's get great. into my, my wife will be working on one part and I'll work on another part. And then when they fit together, we go, oh my gosh, that's, that's half the puzzle right there. I, uh, I made my, uh, my husband and I did one over the holidays. It was just the uh, musculoskeletal system. So there was just like the muscles on one side wow. and then it was the bones on the other. So you can imagine all the same colors, right? So yeah, like yeah. the femur looks exactly like the humerus anyway. All right. So uh, let's get back to your acid. What are some, uh, what are some dietary edits uh, or some supplemental hacks? I don't like the word hack. Um, I love Dave Asprey, but that's just one of my words that, you know, it means, it sort of means shortcut, but anyway, what are some of the simple dietary edits uh, that we can make uh, to, uh, to employ, to lower our uric acid levels? Well, let's call them tools. Cause that's the, <laughs> the term I use in the book. And, uh, and, and first of all, it's what do we take out and then what do we put in? Um, and it doesn't have to be in any particular order. What do we take out? Salt, fructose. I mean, those are the easy things. Does that mean don't eat fruit? Not at all. Uh, as it turns out, fruit consumption uh, is associated with a slightly lower uric acid. Now that might sound uh, challenging because fruit contains fruit sugar, in other words, fructose. But the reality is it actually doesn't contain a whole heck of a lot. Even an apple, even the monstrous apples that we see these days, maybe five, maybe 10 grams of fructose. Uh, that seems like a lot, but that doesn't come anywhere near the amount of sugar in a glass of fruit juice, for example, or a soda. The other thing is it's delivered, it's the context, it's delivered with dietary fiber that slows the fructose consumption so the liver doesn't get overwhelmed and can process uh, that, you know, four to five grams in a short period of time. It's also delivered with vitamin C that aids in uric acid excretion. And it's also delivered with certain bioflavonoids like quercetin that actually targets the enzyme that creates uric acid called uh, xanthine oxidase. So xanthine oxidase inhibits, uh, when it's inhibited rather, reduces uric acid production. It's how the gout drug allopurinol works. Now we can really effectively uh, lower uric acid by eating fruit, but we can also add in uh, taking quercetin as a supplement, 500 milligrams per day. One study uh, published in the British Journal of Nutrition, 22 males uh, young men with elevation of uric acid took 500 milligrams a day of quercetin and they dropped their uric acid 8% in two weeks. So it's, it's a really uh, powerful intervention. So on the front end, we want to look at purines, uh, organ meats, uh, game meats, shellfish like mussels and scallops. We want to limit alcohol consumption, recognizing that hard liquor uh, is associated with increased uric acid. That wine uh, in men has really no effect, but wine consumption in women is actually associated with a lower uric acid. So that's kind of on the table. 
Red or white? Pardon? Red or white? Definitely want to go with red. Why? Because that is made with the skins. You're going to get more of the polyphenols. But beer consumption is associated with a dramatic increased risk of elevation of uric acid in both men and women. Why might that be? Well, beer contains alcohol, but beer contains a lot of purines because it's made from brewer's yeast. So you're getting a double hit. Uh, In Japan, frankly, Japan is way ahead of North America in terms of uh, their understanding of this whole discussion that we are having. They are now, they're they're doing two things I think are interesting. They're treating hypertension by lowering uric acid. And they're also marketing zero purine beer. I mean, we've heard of non-alcoholic beer for many years, but now there are are no purine beers being sold in uh, in, Japan. Uh, I think Canada and the United States, but certainly developed and marketed in Japan. So just something to think about. So it's not alcohol globally, it's alcohol specifically in terms of what you might have. I want to just say, as it relates to the upside, which is you might find this to be good news, coffee helps lower uric acid. Yes. So you can feel good about having coffee. Um, That's a good thing. Now, uh, as it relates to what the diet should look like, a lot of dietary fiber and a call out to the keto people. Keto's great uh, as it relates to not consuming carbs, but keep in mind that dietary fiber is carbohydrate. So you don't want to eliminate dietary fiber, though it's a carb. Really important that we have carbs on board. It, it slows uh, the um, uh, absorption of fruit sugar, of fructose, but also really important to nurture the microbiome. We'll talk about that in relation to uric acid if we have time. Uh, So dietary fiber, really important. But one other thing is that these fiber-rich vegetables contain a lot of these bioflavonoids, natural sources of things like luteolin and quercetin that specifically target that xanthine oxidase enzyme that when it's uh, targeted will slow the production of a uric acid. And again, another resource for vitamin C to help with its excretion. And it's an interesting story that our bodies don't make vitamin C because, uh, and, and therefore um, that's you know another reason to eat fruit, but we don't make vitamin C. One of the ideas being that, uh, and interestingly, traditionally when fruit is ripe, the vitamin C content is the lowest. And Therefore, was there ever an advantage to not having uh, this, the enzyme pathways to make vitamin C and to not really have a lot of vitamin C? Well, you certainly don't want it so low that you get scurvy. But having said that, what is vitamin C? It's an antioxidant and oxidative stress signals uh, through uh, an enzyme called cis-aconitase in the Krebs cycle to actually increase fat production. So that might be why we lost 10 million years ago the ability to make vitamin C. So again, looking at it through the context of how might that have been an advantage for our ancestors, who knows? Now then, on the upside then, a diet that's really rich in uh, in plant-based foods. If you're gonna eat meat, uh, plenty of uh, foods that you can eat, but in moderation. So let's reduce, especially those purine-rich foods like liver and kidney, and scallops and mussels and seafood, shellfish rather. Salmon uh, is a good choice as compared to things like sardines and anchovies, smaller fish, more dense cells, higher levels ultimately of purines. But again, um, 
it may be that you get away with it. And that's okay if your uric acid level is where you want it. If you're taking the 500 milligrams of quercetin a day, 100 milligrams of luteolin, 500 milligrams of vitamin C, all with the idea in mind to lower uric acid. Those have been approaches uh, used in gout for a long, long time, in addition to the consumption of something called tart cherries. Uh, ch tart cherries contain that sweet of uh, bioflavonoids that directly lower uric acid. Tart cherries uh, have been used for gout treatment for decades and decades because they, they look, what is the O in drop acid? It's a cherry, right? You see it falling. And you know, we wanted to connote the fact that certain foods will lower your uric acid. While we're knocking hardly on things that contain a lot of fructose, fruit juice, steer clear of that. Uh, fructose in so many of its um, disguised names that appear in uh, in various products, you know, cane sugar or fruit juice concentrate. Oh, that sounds great. I'm getting all the benefits of fruit juice and fruit juice concentrate. Sign me up for that one. Well, no, what's basically concentrated is the fructose, the fruit sugar. Fructose is sweeter than glucose. It's cheaper than glucose. Hence, you know, the production of high fructose corn syrup, which just exploded in the 1970s, although the actual technology was, I think, developed in 1957, uh, by a Dr. Marshall at University of, of Oklahoma. We've known about it for a long time. And truthfully, there have been a lot of politics involved here in terms of why we decided to get our sugar from corn, mostly as opposed from cane sugar, which came from other countries, though some from Florida, but from Cuba. Think about when this all happened, you know, so there's politics involved and economics involved. But ultimately it's about food manufacturers getting more bang for the buck, cheaper ingredients, sweeter foods using this high fructose corn syrup. So I think the the general rule of thumb, if I can summarize, uh, certainly open to um, expanding on it, is you want to think about the velocity at which this is going to hit the liver. Like you've talked about fruit, like the tart cherries and, you know, other uh, whole foods like an apple, but the apple juice, let's say, or cherry juice derivative is going to hit the liver much faster with a much higher concentration of fructose, which is going to start that de novo lipogenesis. And then the whole, you know, the whole uric acid uh, pathway that, that we discussed. And the same is true, I think, for beer as well, like very dense, lots of cells, but it's also going to hit the liver because it's liquid uh, sugar. Uh, it is going to hit the liver much faster than, um, you know, the, I don't know what the solid equivalent of, of beer might be. But, you know, we want to be thinking about, you know, tart cherries and apples versus apple juice and cherry juice. Exactly. I mean, so now w there is real good understanding of what's causing the beer belly. You're targeting that pathway twice. You're targeting with the alcohol and you're targeting it with the, pur the purines. And that's bumping up the uric acid. And you look at the uric acid level in uh, individuals who have a beer belly or who have high BMIs and they are across the board elevated. You look at uric acid levels and see how uh, profoundly it correlates with type two diabetes and hypertension. Uh, you see it across the board in the issues related to dysfunctional metabolism. So, you know, we look at the, uh, at where it's coming from now and, uh, so again, you know, the degree of satisfaction that I get is it's finally the jigsaw puzzle. You know, these, it really answers an awful lot of questions. And again, the perspective of the historical advantage that it offered us during times 
unlike today, when we didn't stimulate these pathways with uh, alcohol and uh, fructose. The alcohol part of the story, I think, is really interesting. And we developed about 10 million years ago the ability to metabolize alcohol and therefore make fat. The ability to metabolize alcohol was a, an advantage because it allowed us, our primate ancestors at the time, allowed them to eat during times of food scarcity, dare I say, rotten fruit. And what does rotten fruit mean? It's already rotting on the ground and it's fermenting. The sugars are fermenting and forming alcohol and it's not toxic once we develop the ability enzymatically to break it down. So we experienced 10 million years ago about a 60-fold improvement in our ability to metabolize alcohol. Again, because it opened up the door to having the ability to consume that without downside. You know, much we're not going to wouldn't get as drunk as we could metabolize the alcohol, be less threatening for our, I say us, but our our primate ancestors. So it's really just so interesting to look at this. But I think today, when we are faced with you know the notion that here in North America, one in three uh, adults is obese, not just overweight but obese, and that by the year twenty thirty, which is sometime in the distant future, right, eight years from now. Uh, that it'll be 50%. 50% of adults in North America obese. And again, that's just not having a few extra pounds. That's clinical obesity, half. That's It's breathtaking, especially not just from the issues related to it, but what are the consequences of that obesity in terms of risk for Alzheimer's, diabetes, um, coronary artery disease, cancer, you name it. There are so many uh, issues and specifically the cancers, you know, the breast cancer, colon cancer, and pancreatic cancer. Those are the ones most related uh, to that change in metabolism. Um, and it's a consequence of choice. It's a consequence of A, on the one hand, what's being done to our food. I'm sure you had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Lustig about that. Uh, and, um, and and B, the choices that we are, uh, that we could make or should make, but we might not even now be able to make because we've been so uh, overridden and, and captivated uh, by what's going on to influence us. Any medications that you wanted to mention in terms of, to be aware of, in terms of ones that might be potentially also elevating uric acid levels? I know we've been talking about obesity, but of course, the the tendency for someone who is sick obese, who has high blood pressure, who has all of these other um, conditions that they're dealing with, um, there tends to be an increase in you know medication use. So do you want to touch on some of the medications that might sure. elevate uric acid levels? And there are actually quite a few uh, on the list. And perhaps the most widely uh, used is aspirin. Aspirin is known, though interestingly, aspirin is used for gout treatment and yet uh, is associated with increased um, uric acid. The next one is Rick, uh, actually quite interesting is sildenafil, which is Viagra. So Viagra directly raises uric acid. And how does Viagra work? Viagra is a drug given for erectile dysfunction because it, it, offs, it improves the function of nitric oxide, allowing the blood vessels to dilate, therefore helping with erectile dysfunction. And yet at the same time, it's raising uric acid and uric acid works against that whole mechanism, compromising the function of nitric oxide. It may explain why there is a 38% increased risk of erectile dysfunction in men who have higher levels 
of uric acid. Another drug uh, is theophylline, possibly being used more these days, a drug uh, for lung issues uh, used in things like asthma. Uh, but there may be some usage of theophylline in people who are having breathing issues as a consequence of COVID. Uh, another group of drugs that is widely used are what are called the proton pump inhibitors. Uh, these are the <clears throat> so-called uh, over-the-counter acid-blocking drugs that uh, incredibly don't require a prescription used by uh, 13 million Americans. And what's the downside? The downside is they are associated with dramatically increasing uh, uric acid. Another class of drugs that interestingly is used for people with high blood pressure are the beta blockers. These are drugs like metoprolol and inderol uh, that uh, are used for people with high blood pressure and certain other problems, cardiac uh, dysrhythmia. But at the same time, we'll raise uric acid. So you're kind of working against yourself. And it's relatively new information that there's a, re you know, so it was thought, well, if you don't have gout, by all means, take all the uh, beta blocker you want, the theophylline, the aspirin, uh, the Viagra, the proton pump inhibiting drugs, fine, because you, if you don't have gout, what's the big whoop here, right? But now that we understand the role of uric acid in the very diseases that these drugs are targeting, we should be rethinking uh, what we're doing. And if a person requires a medication, great, but let's look at our choices through the lens of does that drug increase or not uric acid? Because if it does, then you're working against yourself. And you're, we've mentioned a couple of times that, you know, one, every point over seven, we have eight to 13% increase in all cause mortality. What is your ideal uric acid levels? Um, do you have an optimal range? I know that many labs, they don't start really, you know, warning the bell unless it's seven or above. Is there a, a range that you would like to see ideally a yeah, functional I mean, range? I think it really not a range. We're looking to have the uric acid level at 5.5 or below. Um, and and your, your, your point is well taken, that if you go to a lab or go to a doctor and, uh, and she tells you, well, you're okay because your uric acid level is 6.9, uh, understand there's two things wrong with that. First, that's telling you that you're in the normal range. And Stephanie, none of the people that you are involved with uh, wants to be normal. They want to be optimal, right? So let's get rid of that old notion of in the normal. Normal means average. And these days, average is just not the metric that we want to, uh, um, we want to strive to for. Yeah. And beyond that, uh, the number seven is derived for uh, those people in terms of their gout risk. Uh, and it actually comes from the understanding that it's really above seven where the very crystallization, where, where uh, uric acid begins to precipitate out uh, in the extracellular space and then starts to form these crystals that form, as you mentioned, in the great toe, but also form in the blood vessels of the heart uh, and even in the prostate gland. So it's above seven that that sort of starts to happen in some people. I mean, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on pH, depends on hydration, uh, lots of different things. But again, those values are derived in relation to gout. And as I mentioned at the, when we started, this is not your grandfather's uric acid anymore. In other words, we're well aware for, uh, away from the notion that uric acid relates to gout or kidney stones, end of story. There is this idea of, a, uh, I mentioned in the book, called asymptomatic hyperuricemia, meaning 
you have elevated uric acid, but there are no symptoms, meaning you don't have gout and you don't have kidney stones. Well, asymptomatic hyperuricemia is associated with uh, obesity, uh, diabetes, uh, dyslipidemia, meaning having problems with your good and bad cholesterol. So there's nothing asymptomatic about it. It's just, we didn't recognize that before, but now that we do, got to take it a lot more seriously. I mean, you know, you have a uric acid level of eight, but you don't have gout in your toe. Therefore, you'll be on your way. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more implication of this now than, than we ever understood. The upside is we've got a great new tool that we can uh, leverage to help people regain their metabolic health. Well, I know I'm just looking at the time and unbelievably we're pushing up on 90 minutes of conversation. I feel every time you come onto the show, there's so much more I want to talk uh, to you with, you know, about and with, and I always value your time. So I wanted to congratulate you on the book. It is absolutely incredible. All of your books are incredible. This one was very, very well done. You've explained very complicated pathways. uh, It is a bit complicated. I know. And that's always the challenge is how can... uh, how can we phrase this so that people can get their arms around it? Because I think once once you get your arms around, you know, the fact that these were survival mechanisms, the fact that we can turn on the production of fructose and you don't have to memorize the enzymes, whatever, but just, hey, I understand now why eating a lot of salt is not necessarily in my interest because it can lead to obesity. I'm you don't even have to get the full connection, but just the relationship between salt and weight gain, salt and uh, risk for diabetes for example. Certainly people have known about salt and hypertension for a long time, but that's the challenge in writing these kinds of books is to make it understandable, at least so that you can walk away and have some tools uh, to to bring about better health. And really what I hope for is extraordinary health for all all the people that we're, we're dealing with. Well, you've done a beautiful job of explaining it in a way that I think many people can understand, as well as giving nerds like me enough information to salivate over and to go down a, you know, <laughs> a geeky magic carpet ride in PubMed. So I just wanted to uh, uh, give you some kudos on the book. Oh, and, thank you so much, Stephanie. You're welcome. And we're going to be releasing this the week that your book comes out. So just a plug for, I know that you have some... Um, uh, I think there's a sugar download that you may have on drperlmutter.com. Do you want to tell people where they can find the book and then any bonuses that they might uh, sure. look to pursue? So <clears throat> the book's available everywhere, um, all the online retailers and all of you know the bookstores around. Uh, if you want to learn more about the book, it's called Drop Acid. And oddly enough, the URL online is dropacidbook.com. That'd be a great place to start. Or just visit drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. But on dropacidbook.com are all the things that you're referring to, the pre-order gifts that are going out and, uh, you know, a lot of the reviews of of the book that I've been so grateful to get. And, uh, you know, just the fact that, uh, you know, people have have recognized that this is yet another tool that we can empower ourselves with uh, in, in the face of you know, the, con- the, the uh, direct conflict to our health that is being offered up by people who don't have us, um, in, you know, our, our health uh, at best interest. A great book, another book to read would be Metabolical by Dr. Robert Lustig. Uh, and he really calls out, you know, what's going on behind the scenes that makes us ultimately eat uh, more fructose, raise our uric acid level, and therefore threaten our health. So <clears throat> it's very nice that so many people are, involved in calling this out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, seeing things as they are, not seeing, uh, but really making them better. 
you know, we can ask why, uh, but we can really do our best to make them better. So there you go. Wonderful. Well, I will make sure to put all of those links in the show notes. And maybe the third guest that I need to have on the show is Rick Johnson, just to complete the trifecta of Perlmutter, Lustig. I will Lustig. help you make that happen. He's a wonderful, wonderful guest. And as you probably noted, I dedicated my book to him. Yes, I saw. Um, yeah, he, yeah. Uh, he has done you know, so much research and he's a great guy. He's a terrific guy. So we've become great friends. We've never personally met vis-a-vis -vis COVID, but uh, we will, I'm sure, one day. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you again, Doc. Thank you. Good to see you. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 